Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, every time you and I get together, we have more interesting things to discuss. There's a, there's a trend that's developing here, and it, it's starting to get almost alarming. It certainly is. And in fact, I never thought that we'd be looking back to 2020 as the good old days, but since 2020, what has started, it's gotten worse. In fact, somebody said a couple of days ago that if there is a free 10-day trial on the year 2021, I want my money back. But anyway, yes, in fact, as we recorded this program last week, we never imagined that the things that would take place during the last week would happen. We never imagined we'd be in the place we are today, but here we are. And again, it is the Constitution at work or people trying to apply the Constitution or trying to disregard the Constitution. So let's take a look at what's going on right now. First of all, of course, we had the events of Wednesday, the 6th of January, and these were an absolute disaster, but we have to understand them in some context here. And for all of the outrage over what happened there, there's a lot of things we don't know. First of all, why are those who are so outraged on this, why were they so silent all through the summer? Well, there was killings and beatings and lootings and shooting of policemen, shooting of innocent civilians, assaults, burnings, all across the country, they seem to either be silent about it or else they would defend it and encourage it. And now it's when it's in their own backyard, the Capitol, now, of course, they go ballistic. But what exactly happened there? First of all, a week ago, there was a rally, a rally called the Stop the Steal rally there in the Capitol Mall on the 6th of January in the morning. President Trump spoke to that rally, and let me just quote a portion of what he said here, because this seems to have been entirely forgotten by most of the media today. Part of what he says here is, we have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Now, to say that that is inciting insurrection is absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, the Supreme Court, in its First Amendment jurisprudence, has weighed in on what it takes to be outside the protection of the free speech clause, case of Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, where the Supreme Court said that Speech is protected by the First Amendment unless it is inflammatory speech, that is, speech that is inclined to produce violent reaction, but in the words of the court, directed to or incite, or, or, or I'm sorry, let's start again, directed to inciting or producing eminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. I don't see any way you could say that the president's speech was 
directed to or tending to incite or produce eminent lawless action. He urged them to go to the Capitol, make their voices heard, never suggested that they ought to enter the Capitol building, but he said they should do so peacefully and patriotically. Furthermore, when things got out of hand down at the Capitol building and people started entering, he immediately issued a tweet telling his supporters to go home. I don't know what more you would expect him to have done. But at any rate, I think that stifled a lot of the debate that was supposed to take place that afternoon and evening. In fact, the Congress was meeting in joint session with President Trump presiding as the Constitution provides, and they had to go into a lockdown situation for several hours. Then when they reconvened, a number of the Republicans who had said they would object to the vote of Pennsylvania and of Arizona and of Georgia and of Michigan and of Pennsylvania, I said Pennsylvania, I believe, Wisconsin, and possibly of Nevada, a number of them backed off. But six did vote against seating the slate in Arizona, six senators, that is, and seven senators voted against seating the electoral slate in Pennsylvania, and over 100 congressmen did the same in both cases. Nevertheless, as I say, they apparently decided not to second the challenges. Representative Brooks of Alabama raised the challenges to these other states, but no senator would join in those. And so the challenges were limited to two states when originally it was going to be six or seven. And every one of the speeches, if you listen to the speeches, well, it seemed like the people who were challenging the electors were arguing facts, the very basic facts of what had gone on in those elections. And the, those arguing against were arguing rhetoric. But they pounded and pounded on what had happened that morning, which, of course, is fresh in their minds. I understand why it was concerning, of course, but they pounded and pounded on that instead of addressing the issue. Are these legitimate electors from these states? Anyway, we know the result of all that was that the challenge was rejected by a majority in the House and by a majority in the Senate. And as a result, the electors in all of those states were accepted. And President Pence then announced the final count and announced that the new president was, or president-elect was Joe Biden, and the new president-elect was Kamala Harris. Now, as of that time, they officially became the president and vice president-elect. And even though the media had coronated them for that honor over a month earlier, plain fact of the matter is the Constitution never refers to a president-elect or a vice president-elect until after the votes of the Electoral College have been presented and accepted in Congress. And so whether they should have been accepted or not, they have been. And so I'll go ahead and say that Joe Biden is the president-elect and Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris is the vice president-elect as of right now. But you think that might settle it, but it doesn't. And so now we have an impeachment effort. And the impeachment effort 
is conducted in the House, and then from there it will go to the Senate if it carries in the House. But as we know, when we talked about impeachments many months ago, during the first time they attempted to remove President Trump, that an impeachment requires a majority vote in the House, which they may possibly get, we'll see. And it requires also to take any further action on it, that is removal from office or prohibiting from holding future office, that that's gonna require a two thirds vote of the Senate. That's simply not gonna happen. First of all, as Professor Jonathan Turley of George Washington University says, this is all illegitimate, there's no basis for it, but beyond that, an impeachment proceeding is supposed to be a very deliberative action where we look to the evidence, we consider the facts, and make a determination. And this is a rush to judgment. We haven't even gotten indictments in on people who allegedly broke in. We don't know what's happening there. And there's all sorts of information that they would need before they can make an informed decision as to what should be done here. For example, those who entered the Capitol, were these part of the Trump rally or was this a separate group entirely? Were they even at the rally? Did they even hear President Trump's speech? And we're told that many had left the speech before it was finished, but those who broke in, had they even left? To what extent was this infiltrated by Antifa people? Why were the barricades to the Capitol moved aside? If so, by whom? And for what reason? And did they believe when those barricades were moved aside that they were legally allowed to enter in? Would that be a defense? What role do the Capitol Police play in this? All of those things need to be investigated, and only after that is an impeachment appropriate. Okay, we've got some other things that we want to get to. We're, we're coming up on our break here, so Colonel, we'll, uh, we'll pick up here in just a few moments. I'll tell you ahead of time, though, I'm hearing the words sedition, insurrection, and things like this being tossed around. I'd like to get a definition from somebody who uh, understands what the law says and and whether these words are, are being applied correctly. So we'll touch on that in just a few moments. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be right back. credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. 
Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. Once again, welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. Colonel, um, you were asking some very relevant questions about uh, what we don't know for certain about uh, the unrest at the Capitol. I mentioned as we went to break, we're hearing some pretty heavily loaded language, though. When I hear words like sedition and insurrection thrown around, those sound like, uh, you know, extremely serious concepts. Um, tell me about your your thoughts. Are they being applied correctly, or is is there hyperbole at, at play here? In the case of trying to say President Trump is guilty of inciting insurrection or inciting sedition, absolutely not. What was in the minds of some of those who entered the Capitol? Again, we don't know. And some of them, they saw the barriers moved aside, thought that they could legally enter. If so, if they would probably have a valid defense to any charge of trespassing or any other charge of that nature. But here's something that I've noticed is that, you know, there are some who say that you look to the political spectrum, extreme left and extreme right, and some of them see this as a circle and that they join at the other end of the circle. I've never viewed it as a circle exactly. But I do think that on both extremes, we do have some people that are interested in violence. And on both extremes, there is a desire on the part of some to break down the institutions of this nation, plunge this nation into complete disorder, chaos, possibly even civil warfare, and with the idea that once this is done, then our side is going to be able to take over and will establish a pure, pristine government of people who think like we do. And there are some on the extreme left, Antifa and 
the Communist Party and people like that who think that. There seem to be some who are placed on the extreme right who believe that, like Nazis and Klan and so on. And by the way, I would not place Nazis on the right. National Socialist, there's nothing conservative about that at all. But at any rate, that's how we often categorize them. But point is, those on the extreme left and those on the extreme right have this one common goal that they would like to see the nation plunged into disorder. And so it may be that they would work together to accomplish that. And so what happened there may have been a mixture of Antifa people and people on the extreme right as well. And again, all of this is speculation. We've got some evidence of things like this, but we really don't know. And before we seek to hold President Trump accountable for this, we need to get the facts out. This should be a deliberative proceeding, not a lynch mob rush to judgment as is going on right now. But obviously one of the reasons that they feel like they have to be in such a hurry to get all this done is that President Trump will be leaving office on Wednesday the 20th and there's a feeling that we got to get this done or at least get it started because after that it can't be done. Well that raises a question then. Can we have an impeachment after a person has left office? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's a good question. And I'm going to suggest to you the answer is probably not. Now, the reason I say probably not rather than definitely not is that we've had this issue come up several times in the past. It has never been addressed by a court. Always it's been Congress deciding something. Most of the time when we've had a case of somebody who is being impeached, if that person's term runs out or if that person resigns from office, the impeachment ends. They simply conclude at that point that the object has been secured and so there is no basis to continue this proceeding further. But there was one instance, the Belknap incident, where they continued with the impeachment after Belknap had, had resigned. And again, that's what Congress did. That does not mean that a court would have agreed that that was proper. We've had other instances, and one of these, for example, Senator Blunt of Tennessee in 1797, he was impeached, but before the Senate could decide whether they should remove him from office, they had already removed him under Article 1, Section 5, which says that the Senate is the final judge of the qualifications of its members and has the authority to discipline its members, and since that was done, they said it is now null and void, and so we will not proceed. Most of the time, when there has been an impeachment, and when the office holder has resigned, most of the time, they have simply dropped the proceedings. And again, Professor Dershowitz of Harvard has commented on this, and Professor Dershowitz says that this is a matter of jurisdiction, and we know that one prerequisite for a court ever taking action is they have to have jurisdiction over the case. And I would say that that's analogous here because Congress is in effect acting as a court when they impeach or remove. Now they have jurisdiction only over office holders for this purpose. Once the person has left office, then they no longer have jurisdiction over that person. And I think if this ever went to the Supreme Court, I'm not only going to say I think, I'll say I'm fairly sure, but not 100% sure, 
that a court would say, no, once the person resigned or his term expired or he left office for any reason, once that was done, the proceeding was over with, there is no jurisdiction to proceed further, and the only thing to do was to dismiss the proceeding. That's what I think a court would say. But the House is going to proceed. And now comes the question, if the House were to vote to impeach, which with a very small Democrat majority and with a few Republicans possibly joining with that majority in this case, very ill-advised in my opinion, and I will say that I hope that any Republicans who join in that motion will be challenged in primaries in the next elections. But if they do, then, of course, it goes to the Senate to try the impeachment, as the Constitution says. And as they try the impeachment, then they will determine whether or not to convict, that's the term they use, making it comparable, somewhat analogous to a criminal proceeding. And if they decide to convict the person, then they proceed to decide what action to take. And that action is limited basically to either removing him from office or making the person ineligible to run for office again. Here's the question. First of all, Congress, or rather the Senate, is not going to convene again until the 19th. That's just 24 hours before the new administration takes office. And there is no way the Senate is going to be able to complete that action before President Trump is out of office. And so it's not going to happen. They, they, as I say, they would need two-thirds. It's not going to happen. Now, there's another question to be raised here, too, and maybe we'll need to take a break before we raise this, but what about what may be the real purpose behind this? And that is to bar President Trump from ever running for office again. Is that possible? And if so, would it require a two-thirds vote? Well, let's save that until after the break. Okay, fair enough. I mean, look, I don't want to sound like maybe some people might be using the, the system uh, vindictively, but, uh, Colonel, it sounds like there are those in Congress who, at the very least, would like to pass a law requiring people to throw trash at the former president when they see him on the street. Mm-hmm. So here's hoping that they, that they don't get their way. Um, at any rate, uh, let us let me ask you this. Um, when we come back, we're going to spend some time talking about the Constitution. Uh, we've got just about 30 seconds left. If there was something where you could urge people to focus their attention right now to be productive and not just worry, what would that be? If you were to focus your attention, I'd urge you write to your congressman, fax him, email him, and tell him you oppose this effort to impeach your senators as well. Okay. Make your voice heard. Very good. We'll take a very quick break. Again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. If you haven't checked out the archives, you can find them there at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back right after these messages. Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 
Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, so what can, what can the Senate do? I believe that's that's where we left off as we went to break. Well, the answer is very clear, first of all, that the Senate tries all impeachments, and no person can ever be punished in any way without a conviction, and that no person can be convicted by the Senate except by a two-thirds vote. Now, what the radical left really wants to do here is smear Trump and get him branded in this way so that he would be prohibited from running for office again. Obviously, they wouldn't be the least bit concerned about this if they didn't fear that he has a following and that if he were to run for office again, he'd have a good chance of being elected. And there is an argument that some are trying to make that they could, in fact, prohibit him from running for office by a simple majority vote rather than by a two-thirds vote. I don't think that is the case. It has only happened once. There are several cases, in fact, as far as barring somebody from ever holding public office, that has happened only three times in American history. And both involved federal judges, or all three involved federal judges. West Humphreys in 1862, Robert Archibald in 1913, and Thomas Porteous Jr. not too long ago in 2010. And as part of their impeachments, they were prohibited from holding office again. In the case of Humphreys and in the case of Porteous, they were prohibited by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. In the case of Archibald, it was by a majority of 39 to 35. However, that is after Archibald had already been convicted by a two-thirds vote. And furthermore, Archibald never challenged that in the Supreme Court to see whether that punishment by less than a two-thirds vote was valid. So we have no court ruling on that. But it is clear, in none of these could this be done without a two-thirds vote of the Senate. So unless two-thirds of the Senate vote to convict, there is no way they can bar him from holding public office. And here's something that I think is an ultimate irony in all of this, is that they claim that they are defending democracy. Now, democracy basically means rule of the people. And we would see one element of democracy as the people's right to elect whom they choose. If they bar President Trump from running for office, they're not simply saying you can't run for office again. They're saying to you and me, Brian, you can't vote for him again. In other words, this is about as undemocratic an action and about as hypocritical an action as we could possibly imagine. And the impeachment may possibly pass the House. It's not going to get beyond that. Some think that if the House does impeach him twice, that will only add to his popularity because more and more people will see how vindictive and short-sighted Pelosi and the others in the <clears throat> Democratic leadership are being here. And there's a number of senators, Senator Manchin, for example, who has said that he would not go along with any of this. There may be a couple Republicans who do, we'll see. But anyway, once again, we have to set this aside for the moment and just say that a week from now, we'll know a lot more and much more of the constitutional history of this nation will have been played out. It's kind of uncomfortable kind of living through those historical times, though, isn't it? 
It certainly is. But I find it interesting. I'm 75 years old, Brian. And to think that I have lived through about a third of this nation's constitutional history. That makes me feel old, but wow. it also made me, you know, I have a couple things to contribute to the discussion that youngsters who haven't seen all this may not have. Well, and, and thank well, goodness, listen. you know, for, for all the confusion and all the people who are, are just wondering, oh my goodness, what could happen? What could happen? Somebody kindly left us you know, uh, an instruction book, or at least, you know, a contract that describes this is how it's supposed to work. So it's not like we, we have to in, invent this, you know, from nothing. Uh, the instructions are there. The question is, will we follow them? And going through that instruction book, that's what Constitution Classroom is all about. So let's set the impeachment, removal, barring from office, let's set that aside for the moment. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more next week. But Let's look at the portions of the Constitution that originally we thought we'd be looking at at this time. And that is getting back to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the section by which we, the people, have delegated powers to the legislative body, the Congress. And as we see, Section 8 begins with the Congress shall have duty or shall have power to, and then it lays out some of those powers. But Let's go on to one that is very significant here, and this is in the area of foreign policy. And here we see both the Congress and the President taking a much more powerful role than you would expect otherwise. As Jefferson once said, in domestic affairs, we are 13 nations. In foreign affairs, we are one nation. In other words, domestic affairs, Largely, the Congress and the President are supposed to leave these alone. Largely, those are to be left to the states, the local governments, and to private individuals. But in foreign affairs, we need to speak as one nation. And so the federal government obviously plays a much more direct role in foreign affairs. But we talked briefly about the power to define and punish piracies and felonies of the high seas, talked about punishment of the law of nations, but now we get to a very controversial one here, and that is the power to declare war. Congress, not the president, has the power to declare war. And because of this, there are some who would say that the Vietnam conflict was an unconstitutional exercise of power, that the Gulf War, the Afghan War, these other conflicts were unconstitutional delegations because in none of these was there a declaration of war. Well, let's look at this in a little more detail here. First of all, it seems, and this may be unfortunate, but it seems that since World War II, declarations of war have become, well, out of vogue, you might say. They just aren't being used as much. And that doesn't mean there's any less war, but it means we aren't declaring war. What was the purpose of declaring war? Well, under international law, and going back to ancient times, the idea of declaring war was to state your reasons why you believe war is necessary, but also to give notice to your enemy what you're doing and what the reasons for that are. And by doing so, you're giving the enemy notice of what the enemy needs to do or can do if they don't want war, surrender, enter terms of peace, 
surrender the hostages they have, whatever it might be, whatever the reason for declaring war is, one of the purposes is to give the opponent the opportunity to declare peace or to bring about terms of peace. Cleon Skousen, a man that I know many of our audience respect a great deal and a man who was a good personal friend of mine, in his book, The Majesty of God's Law, talks about declaring war and how when the Israelites would declare war, that they would do so in order to, it, with, first of all, giving the other side the opportunity to suggest terms of peace. There's a very interesting example of this in the scriptures, and maybe we're going to have to save that scriptural passage for just a little bit later here, but we'll get to it after the, after the break. But plain fact of the matter is, we have not declared war as a nation since World War II, even though we've been in quite a few conflicts. And very few nations since World War II have declared war. Now, the Constitution says that Congress has the power to declare war. It doesn't say, however, that any military action whatsoever involving a soldier in hostilities is prohibited without a declaration of war. Again, we see the division of power here. The Congress declares war, but the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And in this area, where does the president's authority end and the Congress's authority begin or vice versa? And for example, let's say somebody in the Soviet Union, some general had a little too much vodka and pressed the wrong lever and launched a missile attack against the United States. We would have, by the time we detect this, we'll have less than an hour to decide whether to respond. We don't have time to convene Congress to declare war. Does that mean we can't do anything? Clearly, that's not what the framers intended. So let's look more of that after the break. Okay, sounds good. You are listening to Constitution Classroom. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Please visit the archives at lovingliberty.net. Again, that's lovingliberty.net. Just go to the podcast section. You'll find everything you need to know, including all of the archived editions of Constitution Classroom. We'll be back right after this. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. 
What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, with today's low rates, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. With a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, you could consolidate and pay off high-interest debt, tackle home improvements that could add value to your home, or even set aside cash for your child's future education. We've already helped over 1 million clients just like you reach their home financing goals this year alone. So remember this, what can give you the technology to refinance easily and save money? Rocket can. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick loans, internal data, points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing letter, license in all 50 states, and all exclusive access to order number 330. You've heard me talking about MyPillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a MyPillow. You can do it, too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Colonel John Eidsmo of the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. All right, you promised that there was a uh, scriptural passage you were going to share with us upon returning. Uh, Were you able to find it? I certainly was, and this is in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 11 and verses 12 through 27. I won't read the entire passage here, but we'll recognize this as being in the days of the judges, that is, before the kings, so Israel is ruled by a chief judge, but each of the 12 tribes is left with largely the authority themselves to conduct their affairs, and sometimes that even means foreign affairs with other nations. They have a great deal of independence, but on the other hand, if one of the tribes, let's say especially one of the tribes east of the Jordan, like Reuben or Gad, is attacked by an enemy power, how much they could rely on the other 11 tribes to come to their defense was sometimes open to question. They would raise a militia within their own tribe to the defense. Well, in Judges 11, we see that the tribe of Gad is under attack from the king of the Ammonites. And they're looking for a champion to defend them, and they turn to this man, Jephthah, who is something of an outlier, but he is also a hardened military man from the past. And anyway, so they call on him to be their captain in battle. Well, as they are preparing for battle, the, and the Jephthah begins with a diplomatic exchange. And that diplomatic exchange, I think, is most interesting. That I'll just read, as I've written it up here in the Historical and Theological Foundations of Law, he's asked, the Ammonite king has, has asked for 
or, I'm sorry, Jephthah sent messengers to ask the Ammonite king why they were making war on Gilead. This illustrates the historic reason in international law for a declaration of war. It enables the nation under attack to know the reasons for the attack and what they could do to end the attack and rectify the situation. The king answered, the Ammonite king answered, that Israel had taken Ammonite land when they came out of Egypt. They had passed over that land some 200 years before. And anyway, Jephthah, first of all, Jephthah denied that Israel had taken that land. Rather, he says, the Edomites and the Moabites had taken that land from Ammon long before the Israelites transferred So it wasn't even their land at that time. And as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan, they requested permission from the Edomite and Moabite kings to pass through, and that permission was refused. And so they crossed the land, Israel crossed the land, the Edomites and Moabites attacked, and the Israelites were victorious, and so they claimed the right to that land. But then he asked something else. He raises this defense, kind of like we talked about once before here, the defense of lashes, it's too late. He says to the Ammonite king, and that was 200 years ago, and you're just getting around to doing something about it now? And but then he raises another interesting point. He said, when Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and in all the cities that be along the coast of Arnon, 300 years, why, therefore, did he not recover them within that time? And then he makes another argument. He said, now, you believe in the god Shemosh. If you believe that Chemosh had given you this land, you certainly wouldn't give it up. Well, we know that a greater God than Chemosh, the God Jehovah, has given this land to us. And so we're not giving it up. Anyway, so the battle takes place, and of course, Jephthah and the men of Gad are victorious. But the point is, you see this diplomatic exchange where the question is asked, why are you making war? The reasons are stated, and then they decide whether they are legitimate reasons and whether there's another way of working it out. Well, again, the Constitution says that Congress has the power to declare war, but it doesn't say that any military action whatsoever, short of a declaration of war, is unconstitutional. And where does the authority to enter into a military conflict on the part of the president or even on the part of Congress without a declaration of war end, and where it requires a formal declaration of war. Make it pretty clear. Anytime we have one soldier involved in some kind of a foreign hostility, even if it's just as defense, certainly a declaration of war isn't required in a situation like that. On the other hand, if we have a war that lasts as long as the Vietnam conflict did in the 60s and early 70s, or as the Iraq and the Afghanistan conflicts have, can we have conflicts that involve hundreds of thousands of troops and multiple thousand casualties, billions of dollars, if not trillions, in many years? Can that all be done without a declaration simply because we're calling it a conflict or a military action rather than a war? Well, to answer that question, or to attempt to answer it, Congress has adopted what they call the War Powers Resolution, adopted in the 1970s over the veto of President Nixon. No president since that time has ever accepted the validity of the War Powers Resolution. 
and no court has ever ruled on whether or not it is valid. Several times when it has been brought to the court, the court has ruled that, well, it's not ripe yet because there's no actual controversy, or it is moot because the controversy is over, or it is a political question that is better for another branch of government to decide. Every time the court has found some way of ducking out of whether to rule that the War Powers Resolution is constitutional. So what is the War Powers Resolution? Well, let's look at it. The War Powers Resolution says that anytime the president brings us into a situation where there are actual hostilities taking place or where hostilities are imminent, he must give Congress immediate notice of what he is doing. Secondly, that if Congress does nothing about this for 60 days, then he has to end the hostility. However, they also recognize that he may not be able to pull all the troops out in one day, and so they give him 30 days to pull the troops out. So basically it is saying, the president can engage in a limited military action without the approval of Congress for up to 90 days. Now, if Congress approves, then that changes the picture entirely. And Congress might approve by authorizing the president's action in some limited ways without necessarily a full declaration of war. Again, whether that's consistent with what international law used to be, whether or not it is consistent with what the real intent of the framers was, is hard to say. But anyway, I see the War Powers Resolution as a legitimate attempt by Congress to try to delineate where its authority lies and where the president's authority lies, where they overlap, and to make sure that we work out these conflicts. That's where we are with it right now. But So that's the power to declare war. But it is the president, of course, who is going to conduct the war because he is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and we'll be looking more at the president's powers when we get to that section Article 2 of the Constitution at a later time. It talks about the power to declare war and the power to grant letters of mark and reprisal. And what is a letter of mark and reprisal? Well, it's a basically authorization from Congress to seize vessels on the high seas. And many times, especially in the early history of this nation, we relied pretty extensively on private vessels to carry out some of our foreign policy. In fact, as we saw last week when we talked about piracy, that many times piracies as conducted by England and Spain were authorized by the king of their respective country to be conducted against ships by the opposing party, all justified, they thought, because that opposing party is doing this in land that we claim for ourselves and so on. But a letter of mark and reprisal is a letter that authorizes the captain of a sea vessel to seize enemy ships. I thought I could supplement my income because I like to kayak a great deal, and I thought maybe I could get a letter from Congress authorizing me and my kayak to <laughs> seize vessels on the Alabama River and plunder a little bit, but so far they haven't seemed very interested in doing this. And this is something that hasn't really been done very much in recent years. And then finally, within that article, concerning captures on land and water, authorizing what can and cannot be done in such captures. And so that is 
all part of this particular clause of Section 8 of Article 1 of the Constitution. Next week, we're going to look at the power to raise armies and navies, and we're going to ask the question, why does it say raise and support armies, and why does it then say provide and maintain a navy? Why raise and support for armies, but provide and maintain for navies? And since the Air Force isn't mentioned, does this mean that the Air Force is unconstitutional? Think about that till next week. Thank you.